Welcome everybody to the Enneagram Journey with Russ Hudson. That's how this one should open up. It's the Enneagram Journey with Suzanne Stabile, but we pulled out uh, the middle of Suzanne and Russ's conversation from episode 88 to make it its own thing so that people could find it easily. And that is uh, about an hour of teaching on the Enneagram and the nine passions and virtues. Even though it is a continuation of episode 88, I'm still going to have to go ahead and plug the Enneagram Bootcamp. 2020 is now an online event. July 17th and 18th and August 7th and 8th, four days of teaching with Suzanne, Dr. Barbara Ryla, and Dr. Andy Stoker, all on the Enneagram, family systems, and grief and trauma. Definitely something you don't want to miss. You can get your registration and all the information about it at lifeinthetrinityministry.com. And you can find links to that information at suzannestabile.com and theenneagramjourney.org. Now, let's get to some passions and virtues with Russ Hudson. Which leads me to my next question. If we could do what we both love and share the Enneagram in a room full of students for a day during the pandemic, what would you choose to teach? I think I would teach about the virtues. If I teach about the virtues, um, I love the virtues, and they're not really widely understood. The virtues are not a freebie. <laughs> they, they're not... Um, there are qualities of spirit or essence that are just always available if we remember to relax and breathe and come back to the moment. Grace is always being offered to us. But the virtues are more the result when grace has been working on our heart for a while. They're the transformation of the passion, the suffering of each type into almost always some kind of sense of service some sense of uh, another kind of humanity, another kind of heart. And I think that we come to the virtues not through ease, but through the cauldron of challenge. You know, I think Christianity has always got that part of it right. That we aren't transformed by, you know, kicking back and having a beer and just enjoying our habits. Uh, It's not to say those things are bad, but we're not transformed by them. But when we are up against difficulties, when we have challenges individually and collectively, as we do now, it's never been more collective. There ain't any country on earth that doesn't have this problem right now. We have a window through which we can let go, like you were just saying, of that one way I always look at it that one way i always deal with it that one best foot i think i've always got to put forward and we become available to being worked in other ways and then almost without even noticing it we start to bring other kind of qualities to the picnic we start to in a very unselfconscious way be more transparent to bringing the very things that are needed in the world right now it's a kind of very, the, the going through the suffering can be dramatic, but as we come to the other side of it, it's a very quiet revolution. It's in that direction, which is really a turn of the heart that I think the future of the world lies. Now, I, I was teaching for years and years and years when I did trainings. I did a whole big talk about the history of the Enneagram and the mathematics and the sort of, and, and I, I think some people were always a little maybe dreading that, like, oh, I don't need to know all that stuff. Just how can I sell things to a six, right? <laughs> <It's> just, but, <laughs> <that's perfect. laughs> but, but the thing is, when people got into it and they saw the long story and how big of a movement this is all part of, I always ended it with Gurdjieff's assertion that this work was brought into the world because we were at a a crossing point, what's called a shock point in the Gurdjieff work, where we have reached the end of something, we're out of shore, 
and we can maybe see the other shore. We can't really see what's on it, but we know we got to get over there. And so we need vehicles to cross. And those vehicles are not going to be coming from the world we've known. That's your mystery you were talking about. We need that taste for mystery and we need a willingness to be in a sense struck by new realizations, new possibilities, because I think the age that we've lived in is ending. That's how I used to end those talks and sounded kind of far out to talk about that in the early nineties, but nobody thinks it's far out now. Not today. No. Would you, is it possible for you to spend a couple minutes doing a quick run through of the nine virtues? Sure. I think people listening are going to say, I need to hear that next. Well, the virtues are uh, the transformation. It's the heart transformed by grace, presence, salvation, working on the suffering of the heart. In my view, the passion of each type is at its root, the suffering created by a separation from God. Now, sometimes I'm talking with people who don't believe in God, So I just say, okay, your separation from the direct experience of your being, of you being you. Let's just, that's good enough. But, you know, if people have a more religious or theistic or spiritual background, let's call a spade a spade. It's their separation from God. And um, that is such a deep wound, such a hurt. We're not really separated But because we become identified with certain patterns, it seems that way. And the suffering keeps us from landing, and and so we don't land, and so the suffering is perpetuated. And then we have our fixation, which is how we look at things a certain way to sort of try to numb the hurt of that passion. Well, presence, grace, starts to meet the suffering and heal it and transform it. So I could start at any point you like. but you, what type you want me to begin with? <laughs> Let's start with. The, I'll, I'll be selfish here. Let's go with sevens. Okay. That, then I can go around. around I can go around backwards or oh, okay. forwards. Sounds good. Whatever. Seven. The the natural essence of seven is is inner freedom, lightness of heart, possibility, <clears throat> joy. These are all gifts of spirit. They're quite natural. But as we shut down, we can't feel the real deal. So the ego is trying to produce all that stuff, make myself free, make myself happy, make myself lighter, etc. except that's not the ego's job. So when we let ourselves be still, grace comes in and the core underneath that is gluttony. That's the passion. Gluttony doesn't mean just eating or drinking too much. It's trying to fill the empty soul up with experiences. If I just get this experience, if I just have that, if I have this breakthrough, whatever, that's going to finally fix me. But it's not, as we know, that's not going to happen. And then we get, so the, as we let that gluttony be healed, it transforms into sobriety. Now, seven said, can it be gratitude or something fun like that? What, sobriety? (laughs) That doesn't sound fun. But sobriety is delicious. Sobriety is the state where you're so in touch with your soul in the here and now, you feel satisfied. My cup runneth over. You don't want anything else. You're filled with spirit. You're filled with life. You're so grateful that you are where you are and you want nothing else. It's a deep sense of satisfaction that only this transformation of the heart can bring. Eight is um, the passion is lust, which doesn't mean sexual lust. Generally, it could be, but it's not always. Mostly, it's not. It's a, It's a... It's an addiction to intensity and pushing things and making things happen. And, and oh, I don't want a little nibbles. Give me a steak. You know, it, it's like wanting a big wallop of everything. And that's, again, it's, it's born out of being separated from grace as life force, presence as life force, energy, empowerment, juiciness you know when we're more awake and in living in spirit that's how it is we're not walking around gray and half dead we're vibrant human beings 
you know? I, and when I'm talking with Christians, I'm always saying, look at the life of Jesus. He was going to weddings and parties. He was dancing. He was a good, he was, he was not sitting around being this gray kind of dude at all. You know, it's, it's like life in abundance and bigness, right? But you get that through presence. It's a grace. When you let the absence of that, the lust be worked on, you, you, you feel the inner deadness and the grace starts working on that inner deadness. It transmutes it into the, path, the virtue of innocence. Innocence is um, most simply, I won't close my heart down for anything. I don't need to put my armor back on. I'm made strong from within. The real meaning of a mighty fortress is our God, that Lutheran mm-hmm. hymn, is it's inside us. It's not around us. And that power comes up within and gives me the power to keep my heart open, sensitive, innocent, and affected. And from that power and love together, good things can come. Nine is uh, the, the passion is sloth. Which sometimes gets translated as laziness, and you know, Suzanne, you've heard me talk about it. It doesn't mean that there's a lot of very busy nines out there, very accomplished nines. It isn't laziness. Sloth is a kind of shutting down to being the full sense of our inner life. It's numbing ourselves out in life, so we can get through things. And so, as nine, that sloth, as I was saying, it's this. Um, disengaging myself from what's going on. I can still function. I can go to the meeting. I can say, I love you, honey. I can know that, but I'm kind of phoning it all in and I'm not fully there in it. And the nine sits there at the top of the Enneagram is the fundamental issue that to be or not to be, am I here in my experience or not? So the, that underneath that disengagement is what I call the shattered heart where I just feel like I'm broken into teeny pieces and there's, there's no hope. I can't be repaired. I'm just fragmented and the world feels fragmented. But when we let grace work on that hopelessness, when that presence comes in, it transmutes that sloth, that shutdownness into uh, the word I use is engagement. I'm engaged. I'm passionately interested in where I am right now. Right now I happen to be with you talking into this computer and where else would I want to be? This is it. Ta-da. At a town hall meeting. <laughs> I, I used to tell my, <laughs> my students, enlight, enlightenment. You want to know what enlightenment is? Ta-da. There you go. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a sad thing, for people, sad thing for people who didn't live through the 60s at all, isn't it? I know. <laughs> they missed out on all our kooky fun. Yep. <laughs> Well, so you get that, that idea of engagement. So, we have, so we've had sobriety, innocence, engagement. Point one, the passion is uh, it's traditionally anger. I've always felt that it's a little too broad a stroke. Everybody's got anger. And anger in itself isn't really a distortion. You need anger. Jesus got angry sometimes and was not apologizing about it, you know. Anger is a necessary energy in a human life. But that's not really the issue with point ones. I think I use the word resentment, which is traditionally the fixation. It's kind of being indignant, outraged. I I just can't even breathe with it. It's just I can't believe people are doing this and making that. And these politicians, look at what they're doing. Can you believe it? That can you believe it feeling is kind of what we're talking about here. And that is the eight and one both do an interesting thing. They both use anger to mask their hurt. When an eight is angry, they actually eights do very well with anger. They're very clean about expressing it. They can just get to the point. They don't get into big stories about it. But when eights feel hurt, they defend against the hurt with anger and then they make a big old mess. You know what I'm talking about, eights. <laughs> and ones are the same thing. Ones are hurt and wounded and disappointed all the time, and they try to rouse themselves. And really the core of, of that resentment is, is grief, a grief. It's the sense, kind of like the nine, this hopelessness that we're beyond salvation. I'm beyond salvation. 
that God is too far away, can't hear our, our cries, right? And so we all feel that way sometimes. If you have never felt that way, you haven't taken your faith very seriously, right? That's, it's like you have those moments where you just feel like, is this doing any good, right? So that woundedness, when presence comes in, the natural essence of one is to realize in the moment the goodness in this world, the goodness in myself, the goodness in my friends and family, that we all make mistakes and we can be real stinkers sometimes. And there's a core of something blessed and beautiful and good in everyone and everything. But you have to get a little relaxed. You have to go through that reactivity a bit to really receive that. And if we keep receiving that, we come to the virtue of serenity. Serenity is the non-reactive heart. Once we're under the sway of the passion, we think we're choosing consciously what we're doing, but most of the time we're just reacting to things. And our reactivity adds to the reactivity that's already there and tends to make things worse, even when we have the best of intentions. There's a lot of stories and literature about that, but you can look at your own life, right? It's, we see how often that happens. We go in to fix something and make it worse. The one heart of serenity is able to be with the situation as it is, to accept the conditions I find myself in, and from that I'm able to respond. The heart can respond out of love and and has a discernment about what's actually needed. There's an intelligence to the heart that way. So the two, the two, the passion, or should we skip that one? No, really unload here. I mean, (laughs) don't pull any punches. (laughs) Susan, you've heard me talk about the two. I'm an open vessel. Just teach me. Pour it in me. (laughs) All right. So two, the passion is pride. And again, it could be a little misleading because most twos I know are not show-offs. And I'd be a little embarrassed by being too show-offy. Pride is more to do with the denial of my hurt, the denial of my neediness, my rawness, my human limitation. As a two, and it's all again wrapped in good intentions, you know. I, I, I haven't slept in three days, but my friend needs me, I'm gonna be there. And there's not exactly a heart recognition and honoring of where I am. And if I'm not where I am, I can't really be with you. I can only think I'm with you. So, you know, the whole idea of charity begins at home. It's very difficult because in pride, there's a little structure in the mind and the inner critic actually that says thou shalt not be selfish. And anything that I do that starts to bring kindness or sensitive attention to myself triggers that selfish thing. And then we can even use scripture to beat up on ourselves, which is not what it's for, and, uh, and get very caught up in this. So actually, the undoing of pride is, is learning how to receive. Learning how to receive from other human beings sometimes from our pets, sometimes our dog or cat is there. We, we're having a bad day and they stick that little nose in your face and you see that, get it, right? But to receive from God, to receive from life, right? We are not meant to be the end of the spiritual food chain. Mm. We're in, we're in a, a, a transmission of something. And if we forget to receive we run out of the ability to give. As a two, my whole impulse is to give. It comes so naturally to me. I always say twos are, are genuinely generous people, even when they're running their stuff. I still have that generous impulse. But when I forget this other part, to be with my beautiful, ragged, messy humanity, then my, my sharing or my generosity tends to go off course and create trouble for me and sometimes for other people. So the, the, uh, the virtue here 
grace comes in here and it's it's like we rather like the one we grieve the ways we have not honored our humanity the ways mm. we haven't let ourselves be cared for and that we haven't cared for ourselves and when we do that we keep going with that we come to the virtue of two which is humility i love humility I always look for humility first in my mentors and teachers. Humility means I get that God loves my humanity. I get that I'm not outside of the range of that love because I have limitations or needs or problems or doubts. I'm loved with all that. Right. And so it's, it's humility is the sort of, the core of self-acceptance, not like you're giving yourself a free pass, but again, kind of like the one being with that humanity means I can actually be with you. I can actually be in the beautiful reciprocal dance of energies that is our relatedness. And what twos are actually looking for is not relationship as a structure, but open to the whole field of relatedness, how we're all part of the body shall we say mm-hmm. right that's what i'm looking for is it too so the three is um the passion and the and the fixation i think got reversed by a child so i don't know why claudia nerano and i used to talk about this but i think the the passion of the three is vanity and the fixation is deceit because deceit is something you do with your mind. The heart doesn't deceive. And in the Desert Fathers, in the ancient Christian communities from which these teachings come, vanity or vainglory was one of the sins, but deceit was not. So vanity is just an old-fashioned word for narcissism. Vanity is valuing the ego and what the ego wants and the ego's goals. And so then all my energy goes into making the ego what matters right and there's a lot of ways human beings do that not all of them are you know being an executive or something in different cultures it looks really different but that vanity is this non-stop desire to prove i'm worth loving you're gonna love me because i'm amazing because i'm I've done this and that I am a valuable, precious, loving person. And my life is meaningful because I've done X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. The essence behind all this is the sense of preciousness of our life, the sense of meaning and purpose that we get when we're present with our heart. But that comes very natural. I used to say, when you look at a little baby, they don't have a resume, but you can see they're precious, right? Once we got a few years on us, it's like, what have you done lately? <laughs> it's like all that value out the window. But I'm saying when I'm present with my heart and I see you or I see me, we're all precious. We're all filled with meaning and purpose. And of what I, to use a very traditional term, we find the glory in our heart. You know, there it is. Now, the loss of that is spectacular, and it leaves us feeling empty inside, bankrupt. Behind that activity of vanity is an emptiness, a core of feeling there's nothing inside me. I'm a big zero. And you only have to look at how relentlessly people are trying to look important, sexy, popular, get more likes on the internet, etc., to see how relentless a force this is in almost everybody. And if you say, well, I don't care what anybody thinks, you're wanting us all to buy into you that you're special because you don't care what anybody thinks. Sorry, you're in the, you're in the stew as well. Yeah. <laughs> and you always get a few of those. But yeah. the, uh, the, the virtue here is... Um, authenticity and you know sometimes i've heard people say things like well you know the poor threes they have to get all the way to you know transformed heart to have authenticity honey let's just see what was the last time we really had authentic sharing conversation work revealed who we were weren't hiding behind masks the other thing interesting about authenticity is life requires us to wear masks 
we take different roles in different situations. If you're always the same character with your, when you're spending time with your grandchild as you are with your executive colleagues, there's something seriously wrong with you. Mm-hmm. you know, that, that would be a psychopathology. We play roles, but this is about a continuity of heart that's there inside all the roles we play. There's something magical that comes forth, even though we're playing different roles. I just saw the movie of uh, about Mr. Rogers the, and with Tom Hanks playing him. It's this very sweet movie. I don't think Mr. Rogers was a three. I think he was, you know, nine or a two probably without, you know, getting into all that. But he knew what it meant to play the role of Mr. Rogers and inhabit it. Mm-hmm. So that his heart shined through, even though he was being this character for kids. That's a great example. So, um, do you want me to keep going? <laughs> yeah, let's just yeah, let's knock out four, five, and six. I think they would lose it if we didn't. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. For, yeah, no, they're the not worth time, it. But... Let me tell you, forget those guys. <laughs> we'll have to answer for that, not you. So you just need to start talking. I better start talking. Okay, the four, um, the the passion is envy. And I'll just say for a moment, I don't know what happened with the four, but it seems like one out of uh, three people now is a four. Mm-hmm. And it, it, I think people in our culture, you don't find this in Asia. You don't find this in Europe. It's in North America. Everybody's a four. I think it's partially a reaction to the three culture. I think it's partially everybody thinks they have feelings. Of course you do. That's a human. That's not a type. Uh, I think all nine types can be creative. That doesn't make you a four. Envy is a very particular thing. And envy is already kind of complicated. But as you look deeper into envy, I call it chronic disappointment. It's like a, a, a melancholic atmosphere of sadness and an expectation of being let down romantically, spiritually, etc. You just know I'm going to get my hopes up, but I know what's going to happen. So there's this sort of sighing. The force is I'm breathing out a lot and not much breathing in. And that doesn't mean I can't have a nice day. It doesn't mean I can't have fun and laugh, of course. But I, I meet people online. Well, I'm a four, but I overcame all my sadness, and I have no envy, and I'm a happy-go-lucky four. And I said, okay, so let me ask you, how then is studying envy and melancholy going to help you awaken? You're already finished. 21. You've already got it all figured out, right? <laughs> I would suggest... That if you've really found your core passion, you'll be with it the rest of your life. You'll get more skillful at dealing with it, but it's what keeps coming up. Um, And so anyway, that envy, melancholy, and there's a way in which I'm hanging out in this, this sort of expectation of disappointment. Now, behind this, This is created by the loss of the essence of four, which has to do with our true identity. If I was talking about this with uh, Christians, I would say it is our identity in God, our identity in Christ. What are we at the most fundamental, intimate place where we were created? The spark from which you became you long before you had a personality. What was that? Well, to go back to what you said earlier, Suzanne, that's a mystery. It is mystery itself. And it's an infinitely deep mystery. But as we get deeper into it, we always notice the qualities as we draw closer to that place of the deepest intimacy with God, right? We feel more beauty, intimacy, and mystery. And depth, I would say. I always call those the perfumes of the beloved. That's nice. That's very nice. perfumes of the beloved. That's how you know you're getting closer. The more you're walking in this presence, the more everything is beautiful. 
the parking lot is beautiful. You know, the my stack of uh, laundry that needs to go downstairs is beautiful, right? There, there, there's a sense of the beauty of the world just as it is and the mystery of the world just as it is and the, the into excuse me, the intimacy with each moment. Mm-hmm. And, and that, if I'm a four, that's home base. That's where I want to be all the time. Mm-hmm. But without presence, you can't get there. You can't go deep enough in the heart. The fours know it has something to do with their hearts, so they're looking in the right place, but without presence, I can't go deep enough. So I find the layer of my heart that's my reactions to everything. And a lot of my reactions are about feeling the absence of that depth and authenticity and beauty. Mm-hmm. Everything feels ugly and superficial and phony and false. And so I'm constantly reacting to everything. And since that's deeper than what most people are talking about, I take that to be me. And I don't go deeper. I don't mm-hmm. know that that's even available. Oh, man, I've had good. experiences, but I forget. So the, the four then is... Um, if I start to go into letting grace, letting the real beauty and depth touch my heart, my wounded, envious heart, my heart feels stabbed. It feels like what's called in some traditions the great betrayal. Eights have a very similar thing, actually. But the eight, the, the eight I feel like I've already been killed and I'm kind of dead. And I'm fighting to sort of resurrect myself from that inner death. Whereas the four, it's, it's like I'm bleeding out and I'm dying right now. I'm dying in front of you guys and you don't even notice. Mm-hmm. And, and nobody gets that I'm hurting here. Of course, part of why it's envy is because I don't get that everybody's like that. I think it's just me. I'm the only one kind of singled out, screwed up in this way. So when the healing comes to that, it produces the virtue of equanimity. Equanimity, it first sounds like serenity, but it's different. Equanimity is um, the oceanic spaciousness of the heart, such that all human experiences and feelings can arise. They come, they take their bow, they go. And I don't get stuck in any emotion and I don't reject any emotion. I don't stuff emotions. I don't avoid them. I don't, I don't wallow in them. They're just part of the fabric of human existence. I get that now. And you start to see how all the virtues work together. And in that, I can be with you in your joy. I can be with you in your misery. I can be with me in my joy and misery. It, I become, again, usable to be part of the healing of the world because of mm-hmm. that capacity, which is pretty cool if you think about it. So now the fives, I don't know if there's anything good to say about the <laughs> darn fives. got to be equally hard here. They're, all, they're just cranky and, and kooky and give them a, a wide berth. And they're the least complaining about being in quarantine. <laughs> No, actually, honestly, to bust a few myths, um, yeah, fives like their alone time, but they don't want to be alone all the time. Mm-hmm. And the relationships they have are super important to them. Um, I know that it's hard for me to find a, a flow with various folks. So if I have one with you, I don't want to mess that up. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I, that can pull me out of a lot of difficulty. So the passion of the five is is called avarice. And avarice sometimes gets mixed up with greed, and then we're kind of blurring it with gluttony. Gluttony is wanting more. Avarice is trying to hold on to what I already got and not lose it. I want to it's it's a contraction and defense against the perception of possible further loss. I've already lost so much I don't want to lose any more. I feel so fragile. And I talk about the, the heart of the, the five is the, the dry, desiccated desert heart, like a plant that has lost all of its moisture. And in that, the heart feels fragile. So I'm contracted around it because I feel like if I make any contact or connection, it's just going to disintegrate into dust. Mm-hmm. And, uh, 
So in that state of contraction, I'm cut off from contact with the world through my body, through my heart, even through my mind. And in that contraction, the heart can't get nourishment. So the contraction is there to protect the heart, but it's actually perpetuating the problem, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So when we're present with the heart in this way, in feeling that desert heart, the quality of essence comes in is it's it starts with the mind all of the all of the the gifts of spirit are in all the centers they're not just one center it starts in the five five is the first the head types it's as a kind of clarity perceptiveness a precision of discernment a lucidity and i would add uh it comes as part of recognizing mind is is not the content of mind, but mind is almost the field of awareness, the field of consciousness. It's a way we more directly experience what in Christian tradition we call spirit. Spirit mm-hmm. uh, is not a shape. It doesn't look like Casper the ghost. It's more like an open quality. It's what we are prior to or more fundamentally than what we are as these human forms, mm-hmm. right? That our consciousness is something beyond time. Mm-hmm. Now, when we're quiet and present, our mind starts to partake of that great stillness, that great peace. And from that, we know stuff. So the gift of the five is this quality of gnosis, direct knowing, understanding things, recognizing truth that we didn't see before. Can you imagine the world of spirituality if everybody just believed the first thing that somebody said and no one ever came to any new revelations or understanding? we still be cave people, right? But we've been gifted with this capacity to discover deeper truth. Now, when we're really present, that deeper truth gets turned on in relation to the body and the heart. And so it always tends to be in service of love and kindness. So what we know is in alignment with a love offering. It's funny because the threes and the fives kind of win the prize for looking the furthest from their feelings. But when they're really coming together, what the three is doing is a love offering. What the five is sharing is a love offering, mm-hmm. right? So there's a way that the mind becomes the servant of the heart. And um, the virtue here is, uh, is called non-attachment. This is a strong one. Yeah, it is. There's a reason a lot of Christians don't like this. There's a reason why at the center of our worship services is a cross. And we see that in the journey of Jesus, the man becoming the fulfillment of the Christ and the salvation of the world, he had to go through that journey of the cross. And he didn't say, make a fan club about me. He said, follow me. So Jesus was inviting us on the core of the spiritual journey to go through certain kinds of death and rebirth. And we we talk about that in Christianity all the time, to be born again. What What does that mean? Right? There are many levels of truth to that. But non-attachment is seeing that everything that comes into being also ends. Everything that's born dies. Everything is a beginning and a middle and an end. But when you see that honestly, accurately, without defending yourself, what opens up is your deeper heart and you feel compassion and kindness for the world. You feel more open to Christ's love for the world because you see the we're all going over that waterfall. We're all a goner. How can I sit there tormenting you and making you wrong in 15 different ways if I sit with that truth? What do we want to actually do and talk about if we realize we're all a goner? 
So instead of it becoming a, a cause of cynicism and rejection and avoidance, it becomes the reason to participate, it becomes the reason to take our place and do what we can while we're here. Non-attachment. Knowing that you know all the castles are made of sand, but there's some things that are eternal. Mm-hmm. We we start to understand what that is. So um, six, last but not least, I never ended with six before. This is fun because we got the sevens. I hope you guys didn't go out for a break because <laughs> you know, I actually left right the away. room for a little bit. Came back, came back right in time for six. I always uh, Suzanne always teaches when she does know your number. She starts at eights and ends with sevens. And I well, that's usually what I do. It's intentional just to get us. So, well, again, you sevens have to cultivate that patience, right? (laughs) That's a good. That's a big part of of the the sobriety. Anyway, sixes. You know, we we save you for last because you're very important piece of the puzzle. Oh yes, I I just crack up because sixes. A lot of sixes realize they're sixes after getting lost in the woods for a while. That's a sign you're a six. Yeah. Uh, Amen, brother. I would say about half of the fours I've met are sixes <laughs> because sixes also are very emotional. They have issues with their self-esteem. Uh, they have a lot of feelings. They can be very creative, but they just have a different way of going about things and different core journey to take. We all have an inner four, we all have an inner six, but what's in the driver's seat? When I give a women's retreat that is around Enneagram wisdom, and let's say I have 150 women, yeah. and they're my age. If they're my yeah. age, then probably 40, 45 of them will identify as twos. And many of them are sixes who are identifying as twos because that was our cultural role. Right. Yes. That's another one for women uh, to, we even said when we designed our test, if you're a two, if you're a woman and if you're a mom, subtract some points from two because you're so enculturated to play that role, but it may or may not be your core. Well, six is, is almost the opposite problem because it's, it's kind of hard to get a handle on six. There's no single behavior that I think encompasses what six is. It makes it really clear that you find type at a deeper level. But the core here, again, even the words are tricky. Uh, the traditional passion is fear. But I don't prefer that term, again, because fear can happen for a lot of reasons, and everybody's got some fear. And so I looked around in English and thought, anxiety? Well, that's not really strong enough. Yeah, it's true. But that's not really this. It's that's not co-equal with envy or pride or some of these other you know vexations of the soul. And I realized there isn't a good English word, so I used German, <laughs> good old German. <laughs> and the German word that fits, I think, perfectly is angst. Angst is is fear and anxiety, but it's, it's more having to do with fear and anxiety that's not caused by a present danger, one. And two, angst has a kind of deeper suffering in it. Anxiety could just be a little nervous, but angst is like, uh, it's like this twisted, painful, uh, you just don't know what to do with yourself. It's a, and so you get more of the flavor of suffering in that. And it's interesting, the word angst became very popular in German philosophy when the German, in, in the sort of late Romantic period of German philosophy, where they started to talk about the death of God from the point of view that the religious order that had organized all of life in Europe up to that point were falling apart and people didn't believe that anymore. So what was the basis? So it would, angst was described as knowing that one must make decisions, but not having any basis by which to know if your decision is the right one or not. Bingo. There it is. There it is. That's the six in a nutshell. So, you know, the, the essence of six is very beautiful. It's a, another quality of mind 
but I call it the, the direct knowing of what to do. It's, uh, it's, and I've called it in my teaching over the years, I call it inner guidance. You know, we're talking about it in, in Christian terms, the guidance of Holy Spirit, right? That somehow when we're emptied out, meaning we're present in our body and heart and mind and not filled with all our patterns, we just come into the way of knowing what to say, what to do, when to stop, when to go, uh, how to talk to our kids, all of that. You know, our mind might be busy, like I have to have this talk with my son, and oh God, I hope I don't mess up, and you're rehearsing and rehearsing in your mind what to say. But then, if you have learned anything in life, you get there with your son, and you get calm, you get grounded, and the right words come to you. Like Suzanne, you and I both know from teaching that if we're doing a good job with our teaching, the more we're centered in that way, it's more like we're receiving the teaching than we're actively doing something. Yeah. Right. That's kind of how it is. It's like received wisdom. Now, when we're six, that gives us a lot of confidence to deal with life, know that we're going to be okay. The feeling that we'll be okay, no matter what, we're also in touch with the timelessness of our consciousness. When you know that part of you, the part of you that rests in God, you know nothing can happen to that part of you. Mm-hmm. It's beyond the miseries of this world. And you're meant to be in this world with its joys and sorrows. But it's good to know that, you know, that's the, it's like, again, the old idea that you can be in the world, but not of it. Yeah. Right? Remember where you come from. Now, the other thing here is that the hard part is that when we feel that, we feel like we're where we need to be. We're on our path. We're taking our correct place in the world. We're taking our role in the cosmic play, so to speak. And that also feels wonderful. And it fills us with a sense of devotion and service. Where it's not something imposed on us. Just naturally our heart goes there. We are faithful, we're of service, we're devoted to the things we love. Sometimes we're devoted to the mystery. We don't even know exactly who's on the other end of the phone line. But that mystery is speaking to our heart, and there's a beautiful sense of communion in that, in that state of devotion. So that's all six. I'd say that's pretty yummy, wouldn't you? Absolutely. Uh, and the other, oh, the other thing is the, just the awakeness of consciousness. Six is just being awake, being alert, noticing what the heck's going on. Our mind is activated. So when we lose presence, we lose the alertness. We lose the sense of what we're doing. We lose the sense of where we're going. We lose the feeling of guidance. And suddenly we, we certain we're going to crash and we're freaked out. We're anxious. We're in the state of angst because we feel disconnected from the source of wisdom. And then we're looking for some wisdom. We're trying to receive some kind of wisdom or knowledge to show us how to live our life and what to do. And that's where we start piling up rules and regulations and protocols. And, you know, humans have done this in spiritual traditions since the beginning of time. Oh, we, we lost God somewhere here. So let's make God look like our ideas and get a lot of things lined up so we won't mess up. Right. That's what humans do. It's very understandable. And I'm sure, you know, the angels are affectionate about that. But, you know, you, there's I always think of those structures as the training wheels for the development of real faith. Real faith is always going to move us into a mystery. It's going to take us beyond what we know. Like we're invited to a bigger story than the one that we usually are living. Mm -hmm. Even if the externals of our life don't necessarily change that much. It it can be a completely different story in my same house. Exactly. (laughs) I know that's weird, but yeah, I know. Isn't it fun to sort of talk about these things that, have become obvious, but I know they're not obvious to most people. They certainly weren't to me. Um, The last thing to say here is that, um, that awakeness is the loss of all that produces angst. Grace lets us 
have more and more capacity to be with that angst, be with that suffering, with that feeling of cluelessness. I'm trying to do the right thing here and I really don't know. Show me, Lord. You know, it's like that. And as grace works on it, it becomes the virtue of courage. Don't you love it? And courage. Oh, it's so and courage here isn't about you know doing foolhardy things. It doesn't mean, you know, you know mountain biking or bungee jumping or you know anything like that. It's the courage of everyday life. It's the courage to show up to break my collusion with sleep to break all the ways that I just play out the characters people expect me to, not rebelling or fighting, but just bringing more of me each day to bear, bringing more of my heart resting in the divine, being willing to be seen that way. We get all kinds of spooky, scary ideas in our head that scare us out of that. That's the passion again. You know, Mostly people chicken around their spiritual journey because they're afraid that someone they love might not like it. We start to feel we'll lose support. Oh, my husband will think I'm weird. My kids will think I'm weird. Oh, it might get me fired at work. But if it's the real thing, it's not going to make you weird. It's going to make you more available, kinder, more effective in what you do, more able to speak truth into situations. And generally, people will, will love you for that. I used to tell my students all the time, Think of someone you love and think of how you know something of who they really are. You know something about their true heart, their soul, who they are in their magnificence. You know. That's why you love them. And you also love them when they act like a goof, like a stinker, when they're just totally running their little racket and their little trickery, trying to get their needs met. Do you not know all of their tricks? Yeah, you do, right? You you know all the little stuff they're up to. Consider that everyone who loves you knows all of your tricks. You're not getting away with anything. Everybody sees us way better than we think. And they love us anyway. How about that? People, People are waiting for that courage. People are waiting for that real me to show up, that that they know as who I really am. They're waiting for you to show up as that one they've been waiting for. Thank you. Thank you so much for, I know I, that was a tall order to ask and that took a chunk of our time and I'm going to be quiet now and let y'all get to y'all's conversation. But believe me when I say, and I know that that was just the tip of what, what y'all could be touching on.